Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello. The reason why you're in a studio and the studio is not on air is I think CNBC is broadcasting from America live at this point, just to be clear. You are in the CNBC studio, and I welcome you. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence, and I love welcoming guests to somebody else's fabulous space. And CNBC is definitely up there with the better of the venues we've used, and I would really like to thank uh, Hugo Folds and Charlotte Westgate and, indeed, Kelly Evans for hosting us this evening for an incredibly timely event I'm going to hand over to Kelly, the anchor, but I just wanted to say to you two things. Um, One is that I'm incredibly glad that there is an election result because all the talk on the night was of provisional ballots and voting not being counted for 10 days, and that, that had me worried. And the second is to say that the specialty of these events is not just to have a wonderful topical fully grown up panel of speakers, but to have the same reflected in the audience. And so I know that Kelly is going to invite you to participate. And when you do, please remember that this is on the record. So if you're shy, don't put your hand up. And on that note, I'd like to welcome you, thank you, and pass you to Kelly. Julia, thanks very much. Um, Let's get right to it. Uh, Starting on my left here, we're joined by Sir Christopher Meyer. He's former British ambassador for both the US and Germany. He's now a presenter for Network of Power at Sky Atlantic and a non-executive director among many other roles for the Arbuthnot, do I say that the right way? Arbuthnot. Arbuthnot banking group. Arbuthnot. Um, Arbuthnot. (laughs) Arbuthnot, I'm gonna do that a lot tonight, I apologize. Arbuthnot. He's also uh, author of DC Confidential, so hopefully he'll have some good tidbits to share with us. Uh, To his left is Sarah Baxter. She's editor of the Sunday Times Magazine, uh, also a non-executive director of the Times newspapers and um, a Washington correspondent for the Times as well in 2008. That's correct. So knows a little bit about this administration. Uh, Martin Gilbert is to her left. He's founder, shareholder, and chief executive of Aberdeen Asset Management. Uh, He's a non-executive director of B-Sky B. Uh, an adjunct professor of finance at Imperial College Business School. He's on a ton of boards. Uh, Entrepreneur of the Year, Scotland CEO of the Year by various groups, and uh, as someone who spends his time between Aberdeen and London, and certainly traveling across the rest of the world, will be eager to get his sense of how this, uh, how London fits in and how the special relationship fits into that. Uh, and finally to his left is Douglas Alexander, uh, Shadow Foreign Secretary. Uh, he's, he was a researcher and a speechwriter, I want to add, for Gordon Brown. Uh, he was educated in Scotland, Canada, and the U.S., and worked for the Dukakis campaign back in 1988. <laughs> so uh, well, I'm sure we'll have some interesting first-hand anecdotes to share from that as yeah. well. <laughs> I want to start just by going down the line and posing one question to all of our panelists. Um, may follow up with one or two more, and then I'd like to open it up right away for your questions. Um, so please don't be shy. Okay, now his administration has backed Argentina over the Falklands. Uh, it's pursued aggressive fines and penalties on companies from BP to HSBC. 
Uh, the president reportedly snubbed private talks with Gordon Brown shortly after taking office. He once suggested France is America's strongest ally. The question that I want to pose, and first to you, uh, Sir Christopher Meyer, is this. Is a win for Obama actually a blow to the special relationship? Well, no, because special relationship doesn't exist. And you can't have a blow to something that doesn't exist. Now, before you accuse me of trying to give you a smart-ass answer, it is the very premise of this debate this evening is that there has been, at least at some time or other, a special relationship. My headmaster at school always used to say to me, define your terms. And I've always understood that what other people have understood by the special relationship is that in some way it defies the law of international relations and exists in a kind of state of, uh, of, 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 a sort of virgin birth, if I can put it like that, uh, floating above everybody other, uh, else's relations and sort of defies the laws of gravity. The British-American relationship has never, ever been like that. Even during the Second World War, even when it was christened as such, uh, by, by Winston Churchill. It is a relationship which is extremely close. The United States is our single most important national partner and ally, but it doesn't justify the title of a special relationship. And if you look at it historically, what you see is a very volatile relationship in which relations have gone up and down over the decades, partly as a function of whether prime ministers and presidents have got on together or not, but usually because of hard interests and not soft sentiment. There is only one special relationship which the United States enjoys with any country around the world, and that is the state of Israel. Interesting, because I was just going to quote from uh, an Israeli, uh, uh, someone in the Labor Party in Israel, who in your exact phrase described after President Obama's re-election, uh, her pleasure in seeing President Obama re-elected and said, I hope this, you know, I look forward to continuing our special relationship, to use that exact phrase. Um, Sarah, you spent time with the campaign. Um, between that and just generally uh, what you've learned, do you, do you agree? Is, is the special relationship a myth? Well, I can actually confirm that I spoke to Obama when he was a candidate about this very thing, because I was on a campaign plane with him, and I heard him describe the special relationship with Israel. And I said, hang on, <laughs> it's a good opportunity. He was trapped in a cabin. I said, I thought the special relationship was with Britain. And he, he smiled at me and he said, that's the special, special relationship. <laughs> and anyway, so yes, I mean, he is quick on the uptake there. But um, I, of course, I agree with um, Sir Christopher Mayer, who would know better than anybody that it's based on hard facts. But of course, one of the hard facts is that when it comes to providing troops for anything, a coalition of the willing, you can usually count on Britain to be there. And I think that does make the relationship quite special. There is a sort of English speaking union of peoples. If you look at who you know, went into Iraq with, um, with President Bush, etc., this was um, Britain, it was Australia, it was, you know, um, you had a few bits and pieces from other parts of the world and some non-combatants from Germany, etc. But, I mean, we, there is still a pull and a very close relationship, as you say. Martin, do you want to respond to that? Well, I'll leave the, uh, the uh, inside knowledge to my uh, two colleagues here. But uh, in the financial world, yeah, it is our closest relationship because uh, um, Scotland Britain, Scotland, uh, I better remember where I am actually. <laughs> we funded the uh, growth in America 100 years ago and uh, 
And uh, for us, America is the biggest market in the world. 48% uh, of the world's wealth still is in the U.S. We all think uh, the U.S. is in decline, but they really do still control uh, globally. And of course, they're our biggest, uh, biggest clients. But, but it has been severely tested recently in, uh, in the financial world because they do see us as a soft touch at the moment. We've seen that with Standard Chartered and, and HSBC. And uh, when I met the ambassador recently, he said he was spending his whole time dealing with these uh, regulatory uh, issues in the, in the U.S. So it is a strange way to... Uh, to uh, treat a special relationship at the moment. But as I say, they see us as a soft touch. And Douglas, to you. I think the United States remains Britain's strongest bilateral ally. Uh, I was in Charlotte just a few weeks ago at the Democratic <coughs> Convention and heard uh, President Obama from the main podium uh, discuss with some merriment the comments of Mitt Romney when he came to London in July. And he said it takes some skill to insult your closest ally. He didn't say one of your closest allies, which he could perfectly easily have done. And these speeches are read and reread by the speechwriters and the policy experts. Uh, but that's not to deny the fact that in the most recent presidential debate that focused on foreign policy, there was discussion of Israel, there was discussion of Syria, there was discussion of Afghanistan, and of course there was discussion of China. The words Eurozone and Europe were not mentioned. And in that sense, I think it is not in contradiction to recognize the strength of that relationship and recognize the character of the modern world in the 21st century is changing. And to, to stay on with this for a second, what implications, what take should Britain's current government have from Obama's re-election? What, what's the message? Um, how should they interpret his re-election? And, and what does it mean for the current government? Well, thankfully, I don't speak for the current government, given its uh, uh, record here at home. But from a British point of view, uh, as we've just heard, the economic relationship, never mind any other relationship, is vital. And in that sense, it was 20 years ago this year that James Carville stuck that famous poster on the wall in the war room in Arkansas saying it's the economy, stupid. And that's still true 20 years on, that we have a huge vested interest in seeing the United States recovery strengthen in the months and years ahead. I think it's interesting in that context that Martin Wolf said of this election, the 2008 presidential election was a good election to lose, and the 2012 presidential election is a good election to win. So we've got a big interest in seeing a strengthening American economy, because that will not just impact on the British economy, but it will impact on the global economy. Uh, so for reasons of economics, never mind politics, uh, I think the British government will be working, willing and wanting the president to succeed in strengthening the American recovery. M Martin, I wonder though if, on, on the one hand you could look at this and say the incumbent was re-elected despite a weak economy, you know, reassuring message for Downing Street. On the other hand you could say uh, the liberal the left-leaning government was, was re-elected and the message of austerity that, that Mitt Romney espoused did not win him the election. And from that point of view, should David Cameron be worried? Douglas, you'd be far more... Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think looking at from where we look, the financial markets, it was really irrelevant who won the, uh, the election in the U.S. because I think they're so powerless to do anything really uh, significant to help the, uh, the, the, the markets. I mean, the big problem is the debt in the, the U.S. And, uh, 
Uh, I just don't see how they can solve it. Do you, so you view the U.S. debt load as a major problem, and how are you, are you investing in the U.S. as much more so, less so than ever? Well, I think anyone who, I better be careful what I say on the record here, actually. Uh, anyone, it's very difficult to make an investment case to buy a U.S. Treasury bill. I think uh, you can only lose money on uh, Treasury bills, where, oddly enough, the equity market's the complete opposite. You'll make a lot of money in the, in the equity markets over the next few years because the, the companies are in fantastic shape. They're the opposite of the economy. They've got $1.4 trillion of cash, mainly held offshore because they can't bring it back onshore in, uh, in, in, in the U.S., where the, uh, where the uh, government is sitting on this $16,000 billion dollars of debt. I mean, it's, it, 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 one day the world will wake up to this debt mountain that is uh, building in, uh, in, in, in America. It's, 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 it's frightening, really. The figures are so frightening that uh, it's very difficult to uh, actually rationalize that the, the interest bill in America next year is going to be $250 billion. I mean, these are, these are just figures that completely defy any logic. So Christopher, I know you wanted to jump in there. Uh, did I? I look, it looks like you wanted to. No, it was just a twitch. It was a twitch. But, no, actually, do you want me to jump yes, in? Yes, please. The, the, there, there, is, there is something to bear in mind, which is that the point of gravity in American politics lays, lies some way to the right of our own politics, or even continental European politics. Um, and so trying to equate what a democratic government or a republican government will do with that of a Labour or a Conservative government doesn't work for you. It doesn't work out that way. Because if you did try and align the two sets of political parties, because the Conservative Party subscribes to the national consensus that the National Health Service is a good thing, for many Americans, David Cameron and the Tories are a bunch of screaming European socialists. And uh, we know that is not the case. Um, what, 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 I, what, I, what I would say about the specific question you, you asked about what difference does it make or what is the impact of Obama being re-elected, it it's the devil we know. And as far as foreign policy is concerned, what he has proved to be is a pretty prudent, pretty cautious, careful manager of American foreign policy. There's nothing rash there and it's all pretty well considered. And we can work with that and we've been pretty comfortable with that. We might have been comfortable with a Mitt Romney foreign policy if it had been moderate Mitt, or Mitt as we knew him as governor of Massachusetts. But there was severely conservative Mitt, as he himself described himself before a, uh, a sort of Tea Party movement right-wingers audience. And we could not afford to have that kind of Mitt running American foreign policy because he had people around him from the center, they were fine, Bob Zelik, former president of the World Bank, very, very good guy, great practitioner of American foreign policy, best, best national security advisor the United States has never had. <clears throat> but then you had the screaming loonies who were around him as well, including John Bolton. It's well worth reading. John Bolton's a good man. I like him. Um, I like him. He's a good man. And he has written, he's written a memoir, and you need to read that to get a full sense of what the neocon hard right is. And if he and his ilk had prevailed um, in the councils of a President Romney, we would be at war with Iran, uh, near war with China and Russia, and uh, you know, all hell would have broken loose. So it is a good thing from a purely foreign policy point of view, I think, for the British national interest that we have a second term of uh, Barack Obama. 
Uh, Sarah, does that mean a moderate mitt is reborn as uh, America's next ambassador to Britain? <laughs> I don't know. Would he be welcome here after his judicious remarks? I don't know. Uh, I mean, moderate Mitt um, has been mooted as somebody that Obama can do business with. But um, uh, Louis Sussman, the current ambassador, a good man and all that, also just happens to be a, a big, big donor to the Obama campaign. And I suspect that the next replacement will be one of those as well. That's a, that's a tradition here. Actually, perhaps Sir Christopher could enlighten us as to why. Is it because they, I've heard that you actually lose money being the um, American ambassador to Britain. Is that right? Uh, I think you can. It depends how generous you are. Um, <laughs> what, 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 how expansive your view of, uh, of your diplomatic role here is. Um, uh, since most Americans sent to London are anyway millionaires, it's sort of, the matter doesn't arise as a practical problem. Um, most of the ambassadors sent to Washington, British ambassadors sent to Washington, I can tell you from personal experience, are not millionaires. And you have to make do with government allowances. And I'd actually, to be honest with you, they were fairly generous in yeah, my time. Yes. I'm told now that it's, you know, it's toast and no butter and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and as for Ferrero Rocher, just, just, just forget it, it's uh, milky bars all the way now. Oh there are a couple of issues, especially on the foreign policy front, that I want to get into. But first, actually, I'd like to open up and see if there aren't questions right now uh, to put to our panelists. Mr. Christopher, you opened up with the assertion that the special relationship doesn't exist. Was that an opinion you formed while you were ambassador? Was it one you had before you went? Or at what point did you come to that conclusion? I think for the, the first time was when I, when I was dealing in a substantive way with the United States. And the first time I did that was when I was a press secretary to the then Foreign Secretary, Jeffrey Howe. And we traveled across the Atlantic very, very frequently. And in those days, which was still the Cold War and a lot of quite difficult dealings with the old Soviet Union, we were required to cross the Atlantic very, very frequently to go and see the then American Secretary of State, George Shultz. Um, and it's, you picked up a lot of other issues, as well as how do you deal with the Soviet Union. And it struck me very forcefully how, on issues where our interests did not converge, above all on trade policy, particularly trade policy, not only that, also Argentina and the Falklands, that the American interest was somewhere else. And where you did diverge from the United States, it was very hard pounding indeed. It was very, very difficult. And uh, for example, there was a huge argument about air services. There still is, I think, actually. Um, and there, the United States is absolutely ruthless in pressing its national interest. Nothing wrong with that. Why shouldn't they be? But it, it did occur to me that this is a relationship like almost any other we have, except that we have a broader field of interests that do converge uh, than, than diverge. But it was not a relationship which was different in kind from any other. It was not a kind of immaculate conception. It needed hard work hard grind, and that is why I banned the phrase special relationship inside the embassy when I was ambassador there, because I thought it was a delusion. Douglas, I'd actually just like you to respond to this for a second, because you also spent a lot of time across the Atlantic working inside some of these campaigns. Um, did you get a sense then, late 80s, as to whether the special relationship was something that existed more in, in statement than in reality? And I know you've said that you think even today it, it does exist, it's strong, it's there, but does this resonate? Um, given that I was a junior press steward in Philadelphia in 1988 <laughs> uh, and was certainly not the foreign policy advisor to Michael Dukakis, uh, I'm probably not best qualified to answer where he was in 88. 
but you reveal an essential truth. If you look around the shadow cabinet, the group of people I know best in British politics at the moment, uh, Yvette Cooper studied at the Kennedy School, Ed Ball studied at the Kennedy School, um, Ed Miliband taught at Harvard, uh, David Miliband scholarship to MIT. You would struggle to find any other a set of relationships, I would argue, between two countries' political classes uh, that have been as consistently deep. Now, there are some who suggest that that's a weakness, not a strength, <laughs> in relation to Europe, for example. How many of us have been to the Sorbonne or how many of us have uh, studied in Germany or elsewhere? But on the other hand, there is, a, there is an affinity and shared understanding, which was in some ways reflected in the film with which our session began, which reflects the fact that the present generation of British leadership on both sides of the house came to political maturity during periods where there were parallels in political leadership. If you like, the long cycle from 79 to 97, with Reagan and Thatcher being seen to dominate from the right or centre-right. After 1992, Clinton's election, anticipating the election of Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party in 94 and becoming Prime Minister in 97, the sense of the New Democrats in many ways informing and shaping the work that New Labour did. Um, it was in the 2002 Labour Party conference when Bill Clinton had left the White House that he came rather incongruously to speak to Labour delegates in Blackpool. And he began his remarks by saying, it's fun to be back in a country where our crowd are still in power. Now, in that sense, that speaks to an affinity that is real between politicians, I would argue, on both sides of the aisle. Bill Clinton will be back here in London next Saturday and it's the next time our crowd are back together. So in that sense, I think over the decades there has been a whole set of, a whole ecology of relationships that help explain the sense that that relationship still matters. Other questions? Yeah, I may be confused with, with the definition of special relationship. Can somebody please assist in defining special relationship? Because I'm not sure that special relationship means convergence in foreign and domestic policies. Who wants to take that one? How would you define the special relationship? I mean, Sarah, yeah, smart. I'd say it's a, a little bit of a one-sided love affair <laughs> between Britain and America. Uh, we, I think everybody here adores America. Uh, we're influenced by America. Uh, Labour under Tony Blair was very influenced by what Bill Clinton was doing with the Democrats. Uh, I know the Conservatives here had a close look at George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism. So it's not just about foreign policy, it's about ideology. Obviously, Margaret Thatcher uh, adored Ronnie. He adored her perhaps even more. That's one, one example where it really was reciprocated. Um, now, I have to say, I'm not, much as though we still love America, I'm not sure they're that bothered about us anymore. I mean, Obama is from Hawaii. Um, I don't particularly buy into the fact that his grandfather was tortured in Kenya, therefore, by the British, therefore he doesn't really like us. But I just think we're just not that big on his radar. And uh, unless the Republicans really get their act together in the next couple of years, I'm not sure there are that many useful lessons to learn from them, apart from negative ones, if you're a Tory at the moment. So um, that's, that's all I'll say about that. Mark, in a I wonder, too, again, to the question of just how practical this relationship is. Does it just exist in name only? You, know, you mentioned that it's still important to, that there's the amount of trade back and forth between uh, Britain and the U.S. still extremely important. Um, but in your view, does this, practically speaking, amount to anything? 
Yeah, definitely. In our business, our closest relationships in, <clears throat> in the asset management, the banking, or whatever world it is in finance would be the U.S. They're our natural partners. And that's because we, we both are what we would call the Anglo-Saxon model, uh, independent asset management businesses, independent banking, uh, etc., as opposed to the European model, which is completely different from the U.S., U.K. Uh, model in, uh, in the finance sector. So definitely for us, our, uh, our biggest relationship is, is with the U.S., and uh, for us, our biggest clients are in the U.S. as well because that's, I keep coming back to it, 48% of the world's wealth is still resides in the U.S. So for us, it's the biggest market in the world. And, the, and, and we have a very close relationship. Uh, uh, there's great affinity between, uh, between uh, especially in the financial world where a lot of them will have uh, come from... Uh, from uh, Scotland again, I have to get my uh, I have to get my uh, pitch in for that, or uh, Ireland, or wherever. Uh, so there is a long historical connection as well, which which does give us a sort of very close relationship, but not a special relationship. I think you do want in. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do tend to twitch a bit. I actually do want in a bit. But I mean, there, there is there is one way of defining a special relationship, which is this that. If a foreign country has influence over the domestic political processes of another country, then that is a very special relationship. Because by and large, what you're talking about is, is different foreign policies, the extent to which they converge and the extent to which they diverge. The reason why I say that I think Israel is the only country that merits the title of a special relationship with the United States is because Israel has a lock on the US Congress. And there are other foreign countries that have not a lock like that, but still have a lot of influence in the way in which senators and, and House members vote. The Republic of Ireland is another one. The Republic of Ireland almost has a special relationship with the United States. And when, when we were f trying to fight against what we thought, we the Brits thought, the overweening influence of Sinn Féin IRA over American congressmen, it was a devil's own job to do it. And you always knew that the Irish embassy uh, would be able to do better up on the hill than the British embassy uh, could. Now, I have to say that as much as I defer to the Scots, and I can must say, Martin, I, do, I have a lot of Scottish blood myself, I don't recall the Scots having quite that pull on Capitol Hill, even though they created an, an entirely false uh, annual holiday, which was called uh, what the hell was it called? I've forgotten Tartan now. Day. Tartan Day. Tartan Day, <laughs> which was which was which was invented by the Republican Senator Trent Lott, because his mother was a Watson from somewhere up in the Lowlands. Um, uh, that was that was. Uh, that was no special relationship. Can I jump in very quickly here? Because I had no idea about this until I went to Tony Blair's farewell party at the British Embassy in Washington. And virtually the only politicians there were all from the Irish side, right? You know, and it was uh, Ted Kennedy and it was uh, all sorts of politicians that really, to be honest, I didn't know very well. But it was all to do with the peace agreements that Tony Blair had uh, been involved in. And, it, and uh, it was basically all about Ireland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And uh, the rest of them were nowhere to be seen. 
Could I maybe add a different perspective? I mean, Christopher suggested that the cut, if you like, in trying to think about these issues should be domestic as well as foreign. I think there's a future past dimension to this as well. If you're driving a car, it's rather dangerous trying to drive while just looking through the rear view mirror. And what that film showed of the special relationship was our history. It seems to me, if you're honest, the real challenge for the United Kingdom, for the United States, is what does success, prosperity, influence look like in an increasingly Asian century? And in that sense, if you want to make sense of the strategic pivot that we've seen with Obama and Hillary Clinton over the last four years towards America increasingly defining itself as a Pacific power, then you need to start with some understanding of what's going to happen rather than what we've just left behind. And in that sense, America continues to be the world's preeminent military power. Already, I would argue, we live in a multipolar economic world. But there are still whole, whole areas of power and influence which are fairly chaotically distributed. And we haven't yet touched on the fact that as well as a new president of the United States this week, we're going to see the advent of new leadership in China. And in that sense, if we want to understand the way geopolitics and geoeconomics is going to develop over the coming decade, we should maybe give some thought to what's happening in Beijing, just as much as how much Britain matters. Absolutely. And exactly to that point, you know, are, are the squabbling or these the issues or the you know, sense of insecurity about whether this relationship does or doesn't exist distracting from basically the, the sense that the kind of Anglo-American world needs to be or, or will, will have to be a counterweight to some degree to the, the influence of the Asian world or an offset to the development of South-South trade and relationships? Meaning, are, do, these, do these regions have to be supranational? And is this happening precisely at a time when we're seeing one supranational body, that is the, Europe, the Eurozone, the EU, uh, Frank. I would make a couple of points on that. Firstly, this is an area where I, I genuinely diverge from the present British government because their big shtick is that bilateral relationships are the most important thing in the modern world and that's not in any way to diminish the importance of bilateral relationships. They matter. But I would contend that in the world that is becoming, part of your strength in the world starts with your strength in your own neighbourhood. And in that sense, we have a very strong interest in what happens in Europe because as somebody who was at the uh, talks in Copenhagen on climate, led the British delegation to the trade talks in Geneva and the WTO in 2008, if you're sitting, sitting opposite the Chinese with 1.4 billion people representing 60 million people, the weight of your negotiating influence is rather different than if you're sitting with 500 million people behind you. So in that sense, I would argue that uh, of course there are continuing challenges, but the multilateral dimension has to be understood as well as the bilateral dimension. Martin, what's interesting in all of this is that I was reading, there's a Der Spiegel take on this, which understandably is that Berlin is, is the most important partner for President Obama to deal with, like it or not, that Ber it's Berlin first and foremost who he has to work with over the next four years. Um, and I guess I just wonder, what it, how is Britain positioning itself here? Is it as you know, kind of a, a member of the European Union? Is it as a trade and financial center that's trying to maintain alliances and trade agreements with all various sorts of different bodies? Um, and to what extent does the rise of importance of Berlin to some extent complicate uh, Britain's own role in, in all of this? 
Well, certainly from the financial uh, markets, uh, and, and the same applies to the last government as this government, they, they're spending most of their time defending our, uh, our very strong position in financial markets. Um, we are under, um, attack is probably too strong a word, but we're under a lot of pressure from, uh, from, from Europe to reform or our, 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 our systems. And, and a lot of it is being spent just making sure London does retain this position as the, as the leading financial uh, center outside, uh, outside New York. So it is, it's a very tough, it's a very, very tough uh, period at the moment in financial services. Mm -hmm. Questions? Now that Bill Clinton is back at the center of this debate, uh, he was conspicuously absent from the film, I thought. Um, could the panel tell us whether special relationship or not um, the Clintons are going to be an even more important part of the second Obama administration than the first. Anyone have any insight? It has to be Christopher. Gone. It has to be. <laughs> uh. I think. The, I, I think. I think there is a great saga potentially in American politics. It's almost like the what are they called? Montagues and Capulets and uh, Romeo and Juliet, which are the Clintons versus the Bushes. Mm. It is not fanciful to look forward four years from now to 2016 and see the two contenders being Jeb Bush for the Republicans, that is if the Republican Party comes to its senses, which is by no means guaranteed, and against Hillary Clinton. And we would have round, no, it wouldn't be round three, but we would have, uh, we would have the two great families, if you like, back in action again. And I, I have to say about Bill, Bill, Bill Clinton, I was in Washington part of the time when he, when he first came in, and I was also came back again towards the end of his second administration. And when you saw his interventions in the recent campaign, the CS campaign, you saw the master of the game, the absolute master of the game. And it's worth going on YouTube just, just to remember, remind yourself how absolutely bloody good he is. So good that he had the entire Labour Party on their backs, their stomach, or collectively having their tummies tickled <laughs> by a classic <laughs> Bill intro in which he empathizes with all of you collectively and individually and make you know, and you're swooning for him. And this is wait, wait, this we gotta let Douglas Douglas, do you no, swoon no, for no, Bill no, Clinton? No, no, no. I don't think the Labour Party is unique in having swooned over Bill Clinton. No. <laughs> Well, I mean, that is true, but in the, on the, in the, on the, swoon the swoonometer, or the swoonometer, you guys hit a full ten. There's absolutely no doubt about yeah, it. Yes, but I remember talking to Bill Clinton um, after Tony Blair seemed to have fallen in love with another president called George W. Bush, and he was personally hurt and offended because I think he thought that once you'd fallen for him, it was love for life. And uh, this, this brings in precisely what Sir Christopher Mayer was saying about the special relationship being about hard interests. Uh, basically, Tony Blair jilted Bill Clinton once he was an ex-president for the new president, who was a Republican called George Bush. And he did it because he thought that was in Britain's national interest. And uh, I expect he was well, right did, about that. Did he do it because it was in Britain's national interest, or at the time was Blair sort of too kowtowed by the influence, by their personal influence, uh, to have been more assertive uh, with regards to what was, frankly, Britain's own best interest? I think he took a hard look and thought that historically Britain has always come to the aid of the United States, and uh, you know when you know good luck with Berlin because what. Have <laughs> 
when have they ever come to the aid of the United States? I wouldn't make them my best friend. I mean, you have, you have to say, I say that I'm going to upset Douglas now, and most of the time I agree with him, but you have to say, you know, the Boston Strangler or Mickey Mouse might have been elected president of the United States, and but Tony Blair would have hugged him close. There's absolutely no, no Would you like to defend Tony Blair? Listen, I think it's fair to say if Al Gore had won the White House as well as the plurality of the vote in 2000, we would live in a very different world and Tony Blair's premiership would have been very different. But I don't think you can understand that period of British or American history as Sarah implied as a kind of zero-sum game between do you have an affection for Bill Clinton or do you have an affection with George Bush. George Bush, by the decision of the Supreme Court, became the President of the United States and that meant that when you were in the seat as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom you had to make some choices and to govern is to decide. But I would make a couple of other observations about Clinton, which I think comes back to your original question, which is, will he matter more in the next four years or less? Here's one of the paradoxes of Barack Obama. He has just entered the pantheon of a very small number of presidents who have won re-election with more than 50% of the vote, incidentally not including Bill Clinton. Uh, and in that sense, the ball is at his feet. True. That being said, I still struggle as somebody who is fascinated by American politics to tell you what an Obama Democrat is. Years after Bill Clinton left the White House, I can tell you what a Clinton Democrat is. What is the, what, what, how would you define it? Uh, a politician committed to opportunity, community responsibility, a politician with an innate sense that his first and primary task is to deliver economic opportunity to a rising American middle class. We could go through the list, but I think if you were to talk to most Democrats who stood as for elected office during the Clinton period, they were pretty clear as to the language, the lexicon, and the project of which Clinton uh, by which Clinton led the Democratic Party. I don't get the sense the same applies to Obama, and that's not to diminish Obama's significant achievement. Uh, and when I ask friends who work closely with Clinton to explain that difference, they say, listen, by early 1992, January 1992, we knew we had a brilliant but flawed candidate. Jennifer Flowers, bimbo eruptions, we were dealing with all kinds of problems in the snows of New Hampshire. And we knew we needed to build a message architecture around him that could power him over the finishing line. And they said, if you were David Plouffe or David Axelrod, you never reached that moment of reckoning because four <coughs> years ago, you had the almost perfect candidate, the kind of child of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And in that sense, he could embody hope and change. And that was the soaring rhetoric that saw him sweep to victory in the White House. But if you're a marginal Democrat in a tough district in Michigan, hope and change doesn't give you that much to work with. And in that sense, four years on, I think that explains the very different character of the election campaign that Obama has run. Well, now, my point would be, next he years. has won. He's won triumphantly. And in that sense, I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves about Clinton's place in the future, and incidentally his speech in Charlotte was an absolute masterclass. The man is a one-man war room in terms of deconstructing the arguments of his opponents in the Republicans. But if it turns out that over the next four years, we all have a much stronger sense as to what an Obama Democrat is, then Clinton Democrat inevitably will recede into history. But as yet, that's unknown. Well, and just to finish on this point, since 1928, no GOP candidate has won the presidency unless he's been a Nixon or a Bush. I think I got that right. So that tells you a lot about the almost dynastical elements uh, to US politics even. Let's get a lot more questions in as our time uh, runs out. Yes, over here. Could I, or will I, 
analyze the capacity of uh, the panelists to prognosticate on foreign policy affairs. How the, would the special relationship or the relationship exemplifies itself and its complexity with regard to Iran after the Israeli elections in January as we possibly move, I say possibly move, on an option that includes a military element? Thank you. The first question is, would we have been a different place if we were discussing a Romney victory this evening? Uh, and to pick up on Christopher's earlier point, there was a significant shift in tone and potentially position in the final presidential debate to violent agreement between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama on the issue of the Iranian nuclear dossier. Uh, but we're in a world now where Obama has been re-elected. What therefore can we judge as the way forward? Firstly, he was at pains in that third debate to emphasize his commitment to finding a diplomatic resolution to the crisis. The mechanism that has been used under Cathy Ashton, the E3 plus 3 process, has been stalled for some time and on that rests a lot of diplomatic hopes. If we want to see a diplomatic resolution, we're going to have to see that process work. But there was a very significant report, I would argue, in the New York Times just 10 days ago, which was judged by people whose judgment I trust to be very well sourced from within the Obama administration, although it was formally denied the day after during the campaign, that indicated there would be an immediate readiness on the part of an incoming Obama administration re-elected to have bilateral discussions with the Iranians. Now that is hugely significant given there hasn't been high-level bilateral contact on an issue of this sensitivity since the hostage crisis and the Carter-Reagan handover. So if that turns out to be the case, I think that gives credence to a cautious optimism that a combination of the tightening of sanctions that is underway at the moment that is causing genuine uh, uh, difficulties and challenges for the Iranian government and meaningful bilateral negotiations between Iran and the United States yielding the outcome that so many of us want to see in terms of a peaceful resolution to the problem. Sir Christopher. Uh, I absolutely agree with every word that Douglas has just, uh, has just said. I think that Obama has already shown that he is very prudent and fairly sensitive about the way in which you handle Iran. You may not like the regime, uh, Ahmadinejad may drive you crazy, but these, this is a big, a very big and a very significant country, which at a moment when the United States, United Kingdom and other NATO allies are about to withdraw from Afghanistan 2014, the Iranians can either make that easy for us or they can make it difficult for us. And there is the wherewithal actually to strike a very pragmatic deal with Iran if the diplomacy is good enough. And I'm, I read that same story in the New York Times and I'm sure um, that it is very, very well sourced indeed. So if there are private talks going on between the United States and, and Iran, that is a very good thing. And let, let me just say one other thing as well. Again, this has got nothing to do with whether you approve of a government or disapprove of a government. But it would help a little bit, a little bit, if actually we in the West, given the history of relations with Iran, actually showed that country a bit of respect. A bit of respect. A bit of <coughs> public respect. It doesn't take much. It's only <coughs> words. But if you can combine the right words with the right <coughs> diplomacy, it is possible that we can fix things with Iran which will not lead to hot war. And I'm absolutely convinced that Obama 
pulling the United States out of Iraq, pulling the United States out of Afghanistan, albeit leaving quite a fair number of troops behind him, one has to say that, does not want to throw the United States into another war, which is the result of some sort of collateral damage from an Israeli strike against um, Iran. So, um, so building on what, what Douglas said, I'm, I'm quite hopeful that something positive may begin to emerge in 2013. And Martin, just quickly from an objective <clears throat> point of view, how do you analyze the situation in the Middle East? Well, I, I, I think it, I, I was going to approach it from a different, I, I think it just shows uh, this conversation tonight that uh, the politicians still aren't grasping the major problem in the U.S., which it's hurtling towards some sort of uh, uh, cliff, uh, a fiscal cliff. And uh, it just can't afford to do these things in the future. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, going, to be a, it's going to be a very uh, different country over the next 10 or 20 years. And I think whoever said this is a great election to win, I think it's the worst election any American president has ever won. And I just can't, it's just, the, the problems the country faces when it's got, it's spending 24% of its GDP and raising by tax 14% of its GDP. It's got a 10% GDP gap. And these are, these are horrific figures. And, uh, and I think we've got to get back to reality in the, uh, in the uh, sorry, it didn't answer your question on the Middle East, which uh, I'm not an expert in. I'll leave it to the experts here. All I know is they've got to change as a country and the president has got the worst job I think I've ever seen any US president have. I, I want so badly to follow up on this point about the government debt, but to stay on topic for a second, unless anyone here has a follow-up, are there questions related to this issue uh, that people want to ask? I feel very caring and deep about uh, the special relationship. However, to illustrate it, I'd like Christopher Mayer to summarize his fantastic television program about um, the post-war world and how uh, the special relationship played out. And I'd like to add to that the thought that everybody should Google Prescott Bush. If you want to understand the reality of the special relationship, the grandfather of the president to whom Tony Blair was in deep thrall, very offended when Jeremy Paxman asked him, do you pray together? But in absolutely deep thrall, Google Prescott Bush and his relationship to us in the beginning of the war. But Christopher, if you could summarize what happened, because it's the most amazing uh, 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 description of the reality of, you said there is no uh, special relationship. That's the best description of, of, of precisely that point. I mean, I think, Peter, I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to sort of go on for hours in a sort of Fidel Castro type speech, <laughs> but, there, are, there have been moments since the beginning of the Second World War, right up to almost the, the modern day, when the relationship at the very top between Prime Minister and President has been so close, so close that they are almost as one. It happened in the war, and it's happened at various points since 1945. Tony Blair with both Clinton and George W. Bush, Margaret Thatcher with Reagan, Harold Macmillan with... Uh, with JFK. There are, if you like, golden moments over these 50 to 60 years. And if you only focus on them, you could 
lead yourself to believe that there is such a thing as a, a special relationship transcending all other relationships. But then there are things that also bring you down to earth, Peter, with a loud crash. Uh, Clement Attlee versus Harry Truman. 1945, the issue of the end of Lend-Lease and whether we were going to get a loan or a grant from the United States government. A negotiation so difficult, 45-46, it killed John Maynard Keynes, who was the leader of the British delegation. Fast forward to Harold Macmillan. Sorry, Harold Wilson. God, let's get my Harold's back. So I had two Harold's, two Ed's. You know, Harold, Harold, Harold Wilson, a Labour Prime Minister dealing with a Democrat uh, president in the shape of LBJ. Very bad relationship because Wilson wouldn't send troops to Vietnam and LBJ didn't like Wilson smoking a pipe in the Oval Office. Uh, uh, Edward Heath and, was it Gerald Ford? Yeah, very poor relationship, very poor relationship. Uh, Margaret Thatcher got on famously with Reagan and didn't get on at all well with George Bush Sr. And let us not forget that in uh, 1980, 1988, 1989, the first year of George Bush Sr.'s uh, presidency, there was a conscious effort to turn the compass of uh, American foreign policy in Europe towards Germany, to rely on Germany, and the day of the United Kingdom was over. Until the first Iraq war came along, we reported for duty, the Germans didn't, and so we were restored to the favors of the United States. I could go on and on. Uh, John Major got on terribly well with Bill Clinton. Uh, not very well with Bill Clinton, but got on well with, with Bush Sr. And so, you see, it's light and shade all along. It's a volatile relationship, actually, uh, at, the, at, at the top level with a really solid underpinning, which is uh, primarily in the business that, uh, that Martin is involved in. I wanted actually get to Douglas to jump in here. It looked like you wanted to respond to that. I just think we, we don't just need to understand that the strategic focus of the United States is increasingly on the Pacific, but the America of Prescott Bush is giving way to the America of Julian Castro, young Latino. You, know, you have to understand the extent to which the reason Obama won last night was because his coalition looks like the America that's becoming, and Romney's coalition looked like the America that was. And in that sense, our idea that an East Coast white man represents the character of the relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom is rapidly changing. And in that sense, you can argue that with his blended family, his extraordinary globalized personal biography, Obama is even ahead of the changes that are coming. But to understand modern America, you need to understand the rise of Asian Americans, the rise of uh, Latino Americans, you need to understand the rise of women. S huge successes in the Senate last night for Asian women, for uh, gay women. The changes that are happening in America, I think we have to have the humility to recognize are going to change the character of Britain's relationship with the United States. On a personal basis, I find it both fascinating and exciting. And in that sense, it was uh, Jonathan Friedland this morning who said, we didn't just herald an Obama victory, we heralded, heralded the arrival of the Obama nation. And that's the world that we're going to have to understand and the America we're going to have to deal with in the years ahead. Martin, did you want to respond uh, to uh, that? I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, in our business, it's changed completely. I mean, Miami is, it's, it's like Latin America. I mean, it's, it's incredible, the, 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 the change. And I agree with everything Douglas says. It's, 
it has really changed as a country. And, and it's amazing that people thought Mitt Romney had any chance at all. But, uh, I think we've um, established quite well that this special re relationship hasn't existed as we thought it did. What word would the panellists use to describe the relationship as it is now between the UK and America? And if we were to start thinking in terms of either rebuilding or constructing a special relationship with uh, President Obama and whoever follows, what can they give us an example of one change that we would need to see that would put us on that road? Great question, and I'm going to ask them if they can keep it brief and to the point so that we can try and get in a couple more before our time runs out. Sarah, can I put you on the spot? One <laughs> word is very difficult. Um, I think I'd, I'd go for the, 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 the one-sided lovers. I, th I actually agree with Douglas Alexander that America has changed massively. It's changing, I think, in an exciting way as well. Uh, there's no reason either for that to be terminal for the Republicans as long as they make some sensible decisions. So, um, but I don't think it's particularly encouraging for us. I mean, Obama is not obsessed with Britain, and he is that he does represent that sort of leap forward that America is now engaged on. Martin, uh, one-sided is Sarah's very, uh, term, what's very, yours? Very difficult, and I think as a country, we have to now look east rather than look, uh, look west. So. How, how would you characterize, just generally speaking, then, uh, what, what, what would make the relationship? Should, let me rephrase this. Should there be a special relationship? I think it's going to be very difficult to, uh, I, I agree with Sir Christopher, I think, I think times have changed now, I think, I think both countries are looking east or they're looking west, I can't work it out. Uh, we're both looking towards the east anyway and, uh, and I think that's where our future is actually, is, uh, is Asia now basically and I think they, I, uh, Christopher or Douglas would know more than me but I would think that also the US are looking, for, uh, looking east as well. The, the great pivot, Douglas, what word would you use to describe it? I think we can, I, I take a rather more optimistic view, I think we can have an essential relationship, but that depends on what we do and how we conduct ourselves. If we have a politics and a public discourse in Britain dominated by the reach of Brussels rather than the rise of Beijing, we may well miss that opportunity in the years ahead. Uh, on the other hand, if the United States, despite its manifest strengths and economic dynamism, doesn't manage to have a capacity for political decisions equivalent to that economic strength, then all the kind of difficulties that Martin describes will continue. I was in uh, the West Wing and the White House at the time of the debt ceiling negotiations. I was visiting Gene Sperling at the time. The grinding dysfunctionality, the poisonous politics of Capitol Hill um, stunned me as somebody not unfamiliar with politics at Westminster. And in that sense, we've been quoting back and forth Nixon or, or Bush being elected as a Republican. Uh, Republicans in Washington haven't voted for a tax rise since 1990. And in that sense, if you have uh, Republicans still controlling the House of Representatives, unwilling to contemplate in any circumstances fiscal consolidation, then despite America's manifest strengths, that will pose very real challenges to its capacity to return to economic strength in the future. And we're going to turn to this topic in one second, but first, uh, Sir Christopher, what term would you use to describe the relationship as it exists today? Well, the relationship as it exists is close, if you want it to be better, uh, learn Spanish, and also build yourself up as a major player in Asian trade patterns. 
to come back to the economic issue for just one second, because Martin, I know this is so important to you as an investor, uh, but I wonder if the way it's being characterized and if your fears actually um, are directed at the size of the debt, uh, the, the scope of government spending in the US, um, which does mirror what's happening in the UK, when in fact the, the emphasis perhaps we've learned should instead be on growth. If the Eurozone experience has not taught us that what frankly matters, because we just had a, the U.S. today borrowing at 30 years for 2.3 percent, mm. um, there's no extent to which investors are, are pushing for better returns in order to give their money to the U.S. If anything, they've never been more willing to do so. So should the message from this election not be that what matters is growth, even if it means, as Douglas was alluding to, having to raise revenues in order to support that level of spending. Yeah, I think, I think the U.S. is a fantastic country at reinventing itself and growing. So I think they will grow and uh, there's no one better in the world than the companies are the best in the world, the, some of the best managed companies in the world that, at, uh, at growing. But I think the level of debt is so vast that I'm not sure the growth can, uh, can really um, compensate for that. And I agree with Douglas. I think the problem is with the split uh, between the House of Representatives and Senate, it's going to be very difficult to get any tax rises through. And I think that's the, that, that's the big issue. So what they'll probably try and do is inflate their way out of it, uh, which is uh, let inflation just, if you can keep interest rates at this sort of level with negative real interest rates, you're going to inflate your way, uh, inflate your way out of it. But you're right, there's unlimited number of people prepared to, uh, uh, prepared to uh, invest in uh, US Treasury bills at the moment. Did you want Mr. Christopher to jump in? Yeah, I just want to test an idea against the opinions of the panel, actually, because I take a much less pessimistic view, maybe completely wrongly, of what's going to happen on the notorious fiscal cliff. I think the dynamics of the negotiations between the White House and the Congress change in a president's second term precisely because he no longer is under the obligation of having to seek re-election. Some people say that lame ducks him straight away. I think it certainly in the first couple of years actually liberates a president to do things that he might not have wished to do when he was always had his eye on, on re-election. Uh, per contra, Congress has elections in the midterms two years out. And so the balance of advantage, I think, turns towards the president and a lot of congressmen, including the, the Republicans in the, in the House of Representatives, are going to be thinking if the blame is pinned to them, for falling over the fiscal cliff, which I don't actually think is going to happen, at the beginning of January next year, they will lose their seats in 2014. Um, and therefore, I think there's much greater grounds for optimism that there will be some kind of deal. It'll probably be a dirty deal, but there'll be some kind of deal that will avert <laughs> that. Whatever. But I mean, I, I don't know whether, Douglas, whether you, sh you share that uh, Sentiment is Quickly, but it's a serious point. Not all deals are dirty, and actually there needs to be a deal in relation to enough. the fiscal position. <laughs> Secondly, when you talk to Democrats about what happened around the time of the debt ceiling negotiation, um, they said on one hand, Obama was a brilliant negotiator. He never lost his cool, always calm, very relaxed demeanor. On the other hand, they argued that he wasn't as adept a negotiator as he should have been because the Tea Party tendency of the Republicans tilted the table so far at the beginning of the negotiations that his reasonableness couldn't get it back to a position of equilibrium. And in that sense, I don't think we yet know how Obama is going to govern. I take quite a lot of confidence from the speech that he made accepting his victory. That sounded to me like a man who had 
if you like, regained the confidence in arguing for common ground being established. And I would argue we've got a big interest in seeing that common ground established. Those of us who like and admire the United States and those of us who want to see the global economy do better in the future. Final point is, my best sense is what we may see is a two-part deal. Actually, you'll have a bridging agreement done between now and the end of the year to try and assuage the markets. And you'll then look to see whether you can get a grand bargain around kind of Simpson Bowles early in the new year. I want to um, end going down the line, starting with you, Douglas, uh, to get thoughts on what may be the most practical implication of the special relationship that we've been discussing all night, whether it does or doesn't exist, whether it ever existed. Um, the question really might be, if the Obama administration, if, if President Obama himself has to make a call uh, to Britain at 3 a.m. saying, we have no choice but to make a preemptive strike on Iran, and we want your backing when we, mm -hmm. when we do this. Um, will, the answer, will the answer be yes? Will Britain uh, fall into line, so to speak, Douglas? I'm not privy to the internal conversations within the government, but the public indications are the answer at this stage will certainly be no, uh, because the case has not been made when you have a divided security community in Israel you have no clear legal basis for preemptive action being taken at this stage. And you have all of the legacy issues that have flowed from Iraq in 2003 and the concerns that people feel as a result of that. Now, let's see what happens both in the Israeli elections uh, later in January and then thereafter in terms of uh, the negotiations. But I certainly don't think the case has been made for preemptive action now. And my sense is that is a bipartisan position in the United Kingdom. Martin? I think the answer would be no. Sarah? I don't think under Obama that the Israelis would get a big endorsement for any unilateral action they take. So I, I'm, I'm actually pretty skeptical that is going to arise, although I think that the financial squeeze on Iran will continue and the effects of the Arab Spring haven't fully played out yet on Iran. So I think there are other options. I, I don't think it's going to come down to a yes or no from yeah, us. I think economic uh, would be better tactics. Well, it's, it's fascinating. So, Christopher, this almost makes your point from the get-go, which is if there's a special relationship that is supposed to imply that there will be some sort of tacit agreement that goes beyond, uh, that exists above everything else, it, it's quite clear that on this issue, at least, there, there certainly isn't. That relationship will not, um, will not fill the void. Well, I think we would be back with Harold Wilson and LBJ in Vietnam. Then we refused to send troops to Vietnam, although the Australians and New Zealanders did. And I think uh, in circumstances in which the United States would wish to back Israel in an attack on Iran, which was not sanctioned by the UN Security Council, that Britain would not go. There would be a breach between us and the United States. All that said, I sort of share Sarah's instincts that we won't ever reach that point. And as Douglas said, the most, some of the most articulate public and private arguments against an attack on Iran come from inside Israel itself, not least the recently retired head of Mossad, who has described it as lunatic or fanciful, yeah. some, some such adjective. Well, we've had quite the reasoned uh, debate all evening. I want to thank our guests. I actually want to ask, before we let you go, whether we could have had this kind of debate were we in the U.S. in the first place <laughs> for the evening? Douglas, oops, Whoa, sorry. Careful. <laughs> I'm ready for a drink. <laughs> I think you've had one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think America as the land of liberty is still in favor of free speech, so I hope we could have had this debate, yes. Okay.
Well, we're just going to leave it there. Thank you all. Please join me in thanking our panelists very much uh, for their time. And thank you all for coming.